Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation, I speak with a great friend of the show, Tomas Chamorro Premuzic, Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University. Tomas is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. An incisive and prolific writer, he is also the author of a wide range of brilliant books, the most recent of which, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It, was transformed into a TED Talk of the same name, which has racked up over 1.3 million views. Currently the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, and co-founder of Deeper Signals and Metaprofiling. Tomas is also an associate of Harvard's Entrepreneurial Finance Lab, and his commercial work focuses on the creation of science-based tools that improve organizations' abilities to predict performance and people's abilities to understand themselves. Tomas has previously held academic positions at New York University and the London School of Economics, and frequently lectures at Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, London Business School, and IMD, as well as being the co-founder and CEO of Brazen X and the former CEO of Hogan Assessment Systems. So, Thomas, thank you again for joining me. You are one of my favorite people and guests, so this is a real treat. Well, I didn't know there were other favorites, but thank <laughs> you for having me again. So, um, we're actually recording this way ahead of when it's going to come out, because obviously I'm going to use this for my book. And so this feels like a little bit of a mean question to ask. But as you know, I always kick off with one of these sorts of questions. So, I'd like to invite you to answer, from your perspective what you think is happening in the global human psyche right now, given that we're recording this at the end of 2020 and it's all be going out in September 2021? Well, I think there is a mix of kind of a boredom, anxiety, stress and optimism combined. Mm. Um, and, you know, as we are speaking, of course, probably the highlight of the last few weeks has been the enthusiasm for the vaccines um, that definitely got the business world in a euphoric <laughs> state. And I think people are just kind of fed up mostly if I had to pick one of the emotions that I highlighted. And, uh, you know, I think there is more hope than there was maybe a month ago or so, but these things fluctuate so much mm. that we're probably going to see ups and downs until we get to September next year. Mm. That would be my prediction. So, you know, I'm very, very kind of heterogeneous, miscellaneous, uh, emotional roller coaster. Mm. And I guess one of the things that's been coming up a lot, I, I imagine probably in your circles as much as in mine, is this um, concept of resilience, whether we're talking about riding the wave of uncertainty, basically, uh, in our personal lives or whether we're trying to do that professionally. So I'd like to actually maybe ask you, how do you conceive of resilience? 
I think, you know, is the capacity to bounce back from setbacks and adversity. And I see it as a sort of psychological muscle that you do develop and build in the presence of stress and pressure. Um, you know, and I, I think it, there's something very stoic about it, like, um, you know, Nietzsche's famous line, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger kind of thing. It's interesting that recently there have been attempts to kind of uh, invent other slightly different takes or version of this, that if you look at uh, Nassim Taleb's anti-fragility, mm. you know, he says, well, something resilient resists, but you still have scars after you kind of go through adversity and stress, whereas anti-fragility means it actually becomes stronger with as you throw it to the floor or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of bounces back and it, it's, it's, it's the opposite of fragile. Maybe resilience is somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, from a kind of short-term perspective, if, if, you, if you look at the world in the last five or 10 years, maybe even 20 years, I think the growing interest in resilience is uh, an attempt to account to the growing pressures that we face, working longer hours, earning relatively less, uh, having to, you know, juggle work-life balance, etc. So, like, the demands are certainly uh, there for everyone. But actually, if you if you take a broader look and maybe a 200-year perspective, mm. you know, we're quite spoiled at the minute. You know, we're quite spoiled. And I think, you know, you talk about resilience like... I don't know, someone who goes on a mindfulness or meditation retreat because they're very stressed with the internet or something, you know, and that really, you know, people aren't dying so much when there are children and the world is richer than it ever was. So I don't want to ride the progress wave, but it is true in objective standards that actually Mm. we've never had it so good. So I wonder then what it is that we do find particularly difficult about this moment in time and talking about the changes that we're starting to see if we're not struggling for survival, do you think that we start to then ask some of the deeper questions around values and what we seek to get out of life? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I think because we, just before the pandemic erupted, we were at a very good point in time of unprecedented growth, stability, you know, relative lack of conflicts, wars, of course, you know, destroying the planet in the meantime. But actually, Mm. most people had enjoyed stability and I think good prospects and hope for some time. And, you know, we really worried about hashtag first world problems. So, you know, you're worried about not finding something to watch on Netflix or not finding meaning and purpose at work. So if you didn't experience a higher sense of spirituality at work for two months, you question whether you should stay with that (laughs) employer or not. And, you know, I mean, it's all quite spoiled, which is nice because, you know, that's those are all outcomes of progress. Mm. Suddenly there comes something that we've never experienced before, where we don't know if we're going to die or not, where we seriously have to change, um, you know, our fundamental priorities and lifestyle. And I think that is very destabilizing and it restructures the way we think about ourselves. I don't know that, you know, I, I still think that as soon as this is over, people will go back to where they were. And this seems like, you know, there is a sense of not denial, but the fact that nothing can defeat us. And we're soon going to go back to our kind of a sort of trivial consumerist priorities. I mean, as we speak, you know, it's Black Friday in most places and I'm sure people are going to shop like uh, they used to, not going to the shops, but, um, you know, so I think, 
I don't, I don't, I don't think that it's going to make us any more spiritual or that we're going to kind of, uh, be more grateful and appreciative of what we have. I don't know. Do you think that that could be just a little bit cynical? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I try not to be cynical, but, uh, ultimately, um, it's, it's very hard for me to kind of, uh, see things in a different way. You know, I think it's a little bit like, uh, I call it the lost wallet syndrome. Like, you know, you lose your wallet. I mean, this at the time that the wallet was more important than your phone or was a separate <laughs> kind of entity. And you're like, oh my God, I lost my wallet. Oh, I have everything there. My credit cards, my ID, my money. If only I find it, I'd be so grateful. And then as soon as you find it, you're complaining about the next thing, you know? So I think mm -hmm. it, 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 it will take a little bit of time for us to go back to the some sense of normalcy and I'm sure some things won't return but uh, the sort of a quest for mindless hedonic uh, consumerism is alive even if it's gone standby. Mm -hmm. I think Paul Krugman described the pandemic in economic and even sort of a sociological terms as a sort of we're in self-induced coma and we're waiting and then as soon as you know something can take us out we're going to go back to our old habits or you know the person who has a heart attack is hospitalized and promises to exercise and eat healthy but then as soon as they're back out and healthy they go back to their previous habits i know it's cynical but that, that would be my prediction <laughs> i mean we are creatures that hedonically adapt to most of yeah. what life throws at us but i do wonder if because this has been such a prolonged period and people have made big life decisions and changes such as deciding to move out of the city or whatever it might be. I'm not saying that they're not going to regret that at some level, which maybe they will. But I think there does seem to be a tangible change in the way that people are structuring their priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder in particular, in the light of the generational differences of, that we've seen in recent years about what younger people value, mm -hmm. given that there is obviously instability around the climate, instability economically, people are not going to be able to afford homes unless something changes radically. Do you see that there are any generational differences in what people are valuing now? And also, I kind of want to move the direction of this conversation towards business and employers. Are people who are younger expressing a different set of values than others, perhaps? Yeah. And so, you know, generational differences are really hard to observe because mm. mostly when you try to aggregate intuitively and group people um, from different ages into different kind of buckets of values, interests, preferences, needs, you're mostly really looking at age. Mm. And it's very hard to do what good studies have done, which is to compare, you know, 20-year-olds today with 20-year-olds in the 90s and then in the 70s. And that's how you actually look at whether there are generational effects. And the, and the research actually suggests there are some differences. I mean, in general, there is a, a higher sense of entitlement in younger generations. You know, it used to be that we would blame or point at millennials for this, but actually it's, it's a linear relationship. It's a straight line where entitlement keeps increasing over time. Huh. So entitlement, you know, I define as a combination of high aspirations coupled with a poor work ethic. You know, <laughs> so you want to be influential and have power power in, in the two main ways, which is one, more freedom so that people can't influence you and you can do whatever you want, and then B, more influence so that you can restrict other people's freedom and tell them what they need to, you know. So it's like, it's, it's not ambition, it's just entitlement because ambition usually comes coupled with a high work ethic. And so that has been going up. Uh, of course, you know, narcissism levels have risen as well. And I think 
On the upside, though, there is a higher open-mindedness that you can see, you know, with younger generations, not just age, being less hierarchical, and that would probably be good for diversity and inclusion. But, you know, I think we've known for some time that as circumstances improve, expectations and entitlement increases in turn and more, you know. So the fact that so many young people today in most places aspire to having careers that are rewarding, well-paid, fulfilling, and, you know, where they can thrive, surpassing the availability of such careers is problematic, you know. And you also have a clear trend with people gravitating away from uh, traditional employment, where they just want to be, you know, their own boss or entrepreneurs or, you know, the next Elon Musk. And so it is a bit problematic because I think if we promise a great, enjoyable career to everyone is very hard to deliver. And, you know, work is still work. It's called work for a reason. I mean, you have to you have to do certain things that you don't enjoy as much. Same for me. And, you know, um, there's other aspects of life that you have to pursue your interests and your passion. And I think, I can't remember if it's Yuval Harari or someone who actually pointed out that we used to actually find meaning in other realms of life. So in the beginning it was, I don't know, you know, spirituality and unstructured religion and shamanism. Then it was religion. Then it was maybe science. Then came consumerism. And now work or careers or employers are under a lot of pressure because they're mm. supposed to provide people with a higher sense of purpose. And if you have googliness, you know, come here and you join this cult and everything yeah. is going to be taken care of. And, you know, we're going to basically structure your ideas, how you think and all of this, you know. I think there's a reason why culture and cult have the same root. Mm, that's fascinating. A lot of the, the research that I've looked at points towards interesting stats among younger people. So I guess people now entering the workforce and who've been there for a short while, so 18 to 34, five-ish, looking at ways in which they generally prefer, and maybe this connects back to your entitled point, <laughs> they generally prefer working for an organisation that has ethics and values that both align with their own or that are also more likely to stand up for social injustices and climate crisis uh, factors and things like this. And so it's really interesting to me that there is a shift in conversation within organisations away from things like corporate social responsibility towards more sort of integrated environmental, social and governance approach. So that even if you're working in an industry which is perhaps not intrinsically as meaningful, it still comprises certain values that you might also be aligned with. So if I'm going to go and work for a bank, I can't say that I'd be particularly good at it, but if I were to go and work for a bank, at least if it was a bank that was trading ethically, that was helping divest from fossil fuels or whatever by investing in greener portfolios or whatever it is, at least I know that those needs of mine would be met in that work. Do you think that there's some connection there in terms of the shift away from CSR to ESG? Um, or what do you think is happening? Yeah, I think there is a shift. And I think it's, uh, you know, we're obviously not at a stage where for-profit corporations are seriously in the business of making the world a better place, mm. you know. But I do think that if you want to attract the smartest and brightest and most hardworking and valuable employees, certainly young people, um, they will be more wary and there'll be more scrutiny as to what it really means to work in your place. So, you know, there is external pressure and it comes from, let's say, groups of society into organizations 
to display certain pro-social and ethical values, or at least not be perceived as very toxic and evil. But I think it's still fairly superficial and, you know, these things are also easy to manipulate. You can simultaneously, of course, do good and do bad. In fact, you know, the traditional historical American model is that you need to get a lot of resources and money first and it doesn't really matter so much how you get there because that's, you know, the rules of capitalism. And then you kind of give back. Again, this doesn't start today with uh, Apple or Patagonia or Google, even if today we have more means of knowing and these things are advertised more easily. And I do think that people, it's easier to spot when mm. companies mis- misbehave and you can have condemnation, etc. But it doesn't start today. You know, um, Andrew Carnegie, one of the first uh, American tycoons and philanthropists, who I guess was the equivalent of Jeff Bezos a uh, hundred years ago or so, It's a really interesting case study because he actually paid his employees as little as possible Mm. to be competitive and make as much money and profit as he could for his company in order to then build libraries and universities. Because he said, if I pay them more, they're going to spend it on stupid things and are not going to be educated. And, you know, the values are very Protestant work ethic values that they need to read, they need to get educated. And so it's a fascinating approach, right? Because it's, it's both morally wrong and right. Mm. Yeah, but it also assumes incompetence on the part of the people who yeah. are working for you. Correct. Yes. And what's interesting is that in studies that I've read are certainly recently, when you give people money to support them, often they do make good decisions that are basically in their best interest in terms of supporting them to get out of poverty, especially if you give that money to the women in the community. So, I think so. And I think definitely that's, what, that's the, the thing that has changed more is not so much leadership at the corporate or political level, but followership. You know, I do think mm-hmm. that it, it sounds like a bit of a cliche. And here I will sound not cynical, but overly kind of delusional optimist almost. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, there has been more power to the people in in the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, social media and the internet is a part of that. I mean, it's easier to find out what's going on. Everyone has a platform to express themselves. And, uh, you know, things can snowball very quickly. And I think sometimes now we complain when companies are virtue signaling or doing good yeah. things in order to address the potential reaction from the masses or in response to what they do. But that's fine, you know, because the pressure, I think it's coming from outside in. Mm-hmm. So what role do you think ethics plays in successful business? If we're thinking about things like virtue signaling and how that's maybe an inauthentic way of expressing or signaling some worth that one might have, like that would be unethical in my book. But what role do you think that ethics is playing now in business? I think true ethics start with the highest level of leadership in in the business and with leaders that obviously are performing well and are driving a certain level of success or as much success for the business as they need to uh, within the structure constraints and demands of of the capitalist system, but also go beyond that Mm. to do something that improves society. You know, they do something that they maybe didn't need to do, but that aligns with uh, pro-social values that improve the state of affairs for others, you know. Mm. And and that doesn't have to be philanthropy, which is often fueled by sort of a, I call it, altruistic narcissism or narcissistic (laughs) altruism, you know, when you lust for a legacy and Barbara Kellerman has written a great book on this where she actually talks about Bill and Melinda Gates, especially Bill Gates as an example of that. Mm. Clearly an amazing guy doing a lot of altruistic things, 
But what's the motive is to basically be God, the closest we can see to God in a human. Mm -hmm. So, but nonetheless, you know, they're doing it. It doesn't have to be money related or science related or sending rockets to the moon. It can be improving gender diversity or the situation for underprivileged or protected classes. It can be improving the environment. I mean, it's using your power and influence to do more than the business requires today mm. and actually improve things for others. I think it's as simple as that. And, you know, and it's especially when you don't have to do it, that it's, that it's ethical. You know, we often see individuals uh, succeed individually and get to a position of power. And of course, when that happens, the last thing they are incentivized to do is to disrupt the status quo of which they became a part of, you know? Mm. So I think, um, getting there and fighting the cause for the people and making things better, especially when you're taking risks, I think that's that's an ethical behavior. I really like that because it's also super concise to say, okay, if I'm doing this above and beyond what I need to do for my business or to fulfill a certain role, then that's a really clear threshold. I want to ask then a little bit more about what happens when brands or individuals maybe stand up for something they believe in or express an opinion or concern in a way that maybe others don't like and you have this horrendous shoot down with cancel culture that makes it much more hard to engage in robust disagreement and conversation that's generative. Do you think that brands can hold a position and do so in a way that's generative in the midst of this cancel culture? <laughs> so, you know, I think if we think about brands as almost like somebody's or an organization's kind of soul, personality, and values. Mm. And it's something that is a promise to deliver or do something, right? I think it's really important that brands have a clear and distinct reputation. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to a brand if, is if it's meaningless and people don't know what it delivers, what it's meant to do, and what it stands for. And I think mm. in recent years, we are seeing, I think because of the rise of ethical demands and uh, you know, altruistic or pro-social uh, acts within or by brands, we're seeing, I think, bigger demand from people to brands to express where they stand and what they think about, you know, complex and heated, often controversial political issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to the point that I think they get punished or sanctioned if they stay quiet or silent. And, you know, so I think... Most brands have learned to not stay silent, but we often see box-ticking exercise where, you know, something happens. I mean, you know, take Black Lives Matters as an example. Mm -hmm. When every single CEO that goes to Davos and, you know, big American corporation says, yeah, Black Lives Matters, it's no longer meaningful. It just has no credibility whatsoever. I mean, if we all say it, and then why are people protesting and why don't we address inequality or why don't we look at the composition of diversity in your organization, etc. So I think, if anything, there is now some moral pressure or outside pressure to really play your cards and show what you stand for. And when you do that, then you're obviously going to upset certain people. And I think that's fine, you know, because I think you're also going to make other people proud and more loyal to your brand. Yeah. So I think it's, it's the, the problem really comes from the inside because often brands, first of all, they haven't taken even a course in ethics. <laughs> then they don't have kind of philosophical or moral issues at the top of the agenda, you know, and they're very busy doing what they're doing. I mean, producing and with their business. So it does require 
thinking deeper about social issues, aligning and taking a stand. And of course, you know, we want leaders to be diverse and not all have the same opinion. So I think something really interesting happens when maybe one or two executives in a company take a stand, but that stance is not shared by others. And then you have pushback or annoyance from within. I mean, I've had friends who told me that they are basically upset or annoyed that if they tweeted all lives matters, they might lose their job in big corporations. Mm. And you're like, you know, I mean, if that's really a problem, I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, there's probably more important and pressing issues in the world than for me to feel sorry for you, which is my general stand on academics that complain about cancel culture. Like now people complaining that Random House or whoever publishes Jordan Peterson, the employees are crying and complaining. It's like, this is disgusting. It's the end of freedom of expression. No, actually, that's the way, you know, in the old days, they might have hung you or chopped off your head. So, I mean, you know, we've come a long way in, in, in expressing our disagreements. And, and this is really kind of very fluffy and cushy. I think what's interesting is that in an attempt for brands to kind of send a message and and keep that close, loyal connection and be trustworthy with or authentic even with consumers, mm. there can be internal issues that arise. I mean, or the famous case of uh, Google firing, you know, James Desmore, the engineer, because he posted that memo saying he didn't agree mm. with the gender diversity policies. And then he's fired. You know, that's quite interesting in a way, because it's the opposite of what you would expect a company like Google in charge of spreading and mm. organizing knowledge of all yeah. sorts to do. But then maybe it shows, it reveals the true ideals underneath that which are espoused in a public forum. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. But, you know, then firing an engineer for being not even a chauvinist, but for expressing anti-diversity views or disagreeing with a diversity policy sends a message. But then if we look at your composition and you still don't hire enough women at the top, then, you know, what's really going on? Yeah, yeah. So when trust when trust is broken like this, whether it's between employees within an organization or between a brand and its customers, what do you feel are some of the key elements that are necessary for the reparation of that relationship? How can you patch things up? Yeah, I think it's really difficult to repair and patch things up. You know, it's really, really difficult. And uh, trust and credibility take ages to build. Mm. And, you know, there's a reason why reputable brands have been with us for a long time and they've been very consistent and they have very clear principles and a clear image. And they're quite traditional in a way. And they're very cautious when it comes to changing anything. Mm. Um, But then one small blip can really destroy your reputation. I mean, it's same like, you know, as it happens with leaders or people, one Me Too incident changes everything. Here, one incident can change everything. So I think, you know, you have to be very, very categorical and uh, almost over the top to make up for that. If we take, for example, the case of Uber, you know, they had a very kind of disruptive and toxic co-founder or founder and CEO, uh, misbehaved, was caught on camera, the reaction wasn't good. Uber changed to a CEO that is the complete Mm. opposite, you know, great reputation, very pro-social, great image. Obviously, internally, people must have seen the change because there is true change in the way the company is led. But for a lot of people, Uber is still that 
toxic and dark side uh, brand. Mm. And I think, I mean, maybe because I spend more time studying CEOs and leaders and I look at what they're doing, I think they're doing a lot of things that are clear attempts to show that they want to do good and things change. But for the average consumer, you know, it will take a long time. Mm. So I think you need time, you need to apologize, you need to come clean, you need to explain exactly how things are going to change. You need to show consistency between your words and your actions. Mm. And, you know, even if you get people rating you positively, your own employees rating you positively in Glassdoor and all of that, it still won't automatically transpire to the outside world, you know. And, uh, of course, you need very good branding and PR. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need to be able to at least publicize in a non, seemingly non-self-serving way that you're actually doing good and being good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in, in the sort of vein of leadership... Can we talk a little bit about what you think leaders can do to construct a culture for employees that includes benefiting their well-being and a search for happiness? Mm -hmm. Here, you know, I see a very interesting trend. There's, there's a lot of big companies that are changing the way they measure the performance of the leaders and what they call KPIs, so key performance indicators, mm -hmm. where, you know, historically... The model was if you hit your results and you have good financials and you're achieving what you need to achieve, I don't really care how you get there. <laughs> and it's sort of very results oriented and in a way meritocratic kind of culture. That's, you know, what they call the what of performance. What are you delivering? And in recent years, the trend has been to emphasize also more the how. And the how means how are you actually leading? What's your style? And can we look at not just your objective raw results or metrics, but also how your team is feeling, whether they're engaged, whether there are high levels of mental and physical well-being. And so that's what they call the how, right? And so imagine I'm going to be very um, uh, concrete with examples. It used to be 100% results, nothing else mattered. And then it changed to like 80-20. Now a lot of companies are changing to a 50-50 model, yeah. which is a big shock to traditional kind of operator leaders because they're like, why don't you leave me alone? I'm hitting my results and that's it. And yet they care about, they're basically saying, if your team is burned out or overstretched or they're unhappy about you, it's basically treating your employees like consumers, mm. you know? And if they report some wrongdoing or they don't feel that you're developing them, you're giving them feedback and they're growing, um, it's not going to cut it and you're not going to get your bonus, basically. Mm. And, you know, in a way, it's a little bit like finding people for not wearing a seatbelt because it's good for you to wear a seatbelt. And actually, if you're good at the how of leadership and your team is engaged and they trust you and they like you, they are going to be more productive. Mm. But there's also a risk, I think, when everything is diluted and taken too far and companies have chief happiness officers and corporations pretend that well-being is the most important thing and, you know, that they're running a social club and that you have to have fun and, you know, it doesn't matter what you produce. That's A, hypocritical, and B, It's not even what people want, mm. because what people want is to feel productive and feel that they're learning and that they're delivering something beyond their expectations and that they're producing something that is valuable to them, yeah. you know. Mm. And, and by the way, you know, people differ in what they want as well. So, you know, some people might be a great fit for Amazon, where there's kind of radical transparency and it's very performance-based culture and the how won't really matter. 
And some people might want to work in a Lululemon kind of environment, you know, mm. where they find that they're kind of part of a spiritual sect. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about that then, because as you described, like we have different motivations for doing things. And some companies are starting to touch upon people's intrinsic motivations more than others. So they're wanting to engage people where they're doing a task or getting involved in a project because it also has something which is fundamentally interesting to them. It gives them a sense of flow or satisfaction. Do you think there is a way for businesses to better identify what intrinsic motivations might be interesting for people? Yeah, and you know, this is one of the areas where progress would be so easy to attain because for three or four decades, we've known how to measure psychological values, interests, needs, you know, whether you are more driven by power, by freedom, by hedonism, by learning, by, you know, um, socializing or bonding with others, affiliation, etc. So, you know, it might, whether you have five, eight, ten different needs, and you can take Schwartz's model as a kind of good framework, yeah. you know, people differ. And that's sort of like their inner mental compass or their map of where they're going to be happy, thriving. And we've known for so long that the best way to motivate people is to not motivate them at all. <laughs> Just assign them to a role or task they love and then they will be self-motivated and they will be more creative in a state of flow. And you probably have to try to stop them from working because they're going <laughs> to want to work so much. And yet there's a total disdain and reluctance to do this. I mean, even when companies use assessments or when they try to understand employees, they still assume that because you're working in a team or you have a certain profile that you're going to be equally motivated as the next person yeah. to do this. And if I pay you more, you're going to work harder. And if I give you, you know, a bigger office, a bigger title or more vacation time, you're going to be grateful. And so there's a huge possibility to bet more on intrinsic motivation. It only requires understanding what people's needs and values are, and then try to structure the work and the job uh, in a way that is compatible for it. I mean, there is some progress. If you look at the literature on job crafting or role crafting, you're supposed to do this job, but how can I fine tune it or white label it in a way that is more compatible or in sync with your values. But it's still, you know, very, very few people do this. Mm. I wonder also if that's just because of the way in which we think about how we organise roles and the way in which people come at things from different perspectives with different needs. We're all about personalization when it comes to data and when it comes to the consumer, yeah. but maybe we're more reticent to apply similar approaches when it comes to, to within business structuring and employment. So I want to talk a little bit about leading because this is something which you are very experienced in and you've written a great deal about, especially with your fantastic book. Can we just plug your book for a second, tell people what it is quickly and what it's about? Yep. So the latest book is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And it <laughs> argues that, in essence, we prefer male incompetence to female competence. Mm. And when we select, nominate or appoint leaders, we're focused too much on style and we select them based on confidence, narcissism and charisma. And uh, actually, when you have the things that you need to have to lead effectively, things like competence, humility and integrity... Um, we almost overlook you or ignore you for leadership roles. And that basically the gender gap can be explained in not really so much gender, but by the fact that we focus on the wrong traits. Crazy. Let's talk about that, the focusing on the wrong mm -hmm. traits and what you think might be happening in the present moment. Because 
It seems to me that there was a lot of space given in the press during the pandemic, especially at the height, when there was a lot of uncertainty as to how nation states should respond. There was a lot in the press about leaders in countries that were taking stricter approaches earlier on to protect people and the rates were much lower, and that these countries were led by women who tended to take a more collaborative approach. I know that some of your colleagues have written quite fascinatingly about this. Mm-hmm. What do you think is happening there? Is it a specific form of leadership, maybe a post-heroic form of leadership that is enabling people to make decisions that maybe are better for the whole? I think it's mostly just good leadership, mm-hmm. you know. And I think even if we leave aside the gender issue for for a minute, really in a in a logical or normal world, we shouldn't have needed a pandemic to realize <laughs> that people, groups and societies are generally better off if their leaders are smart, kind and honest. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening, you know. And smart here is important because it includes learning and being data-driven and being rational, you know, the kind part or nice part includes being empathetic and caring about people when they're at risk. And and the honest part, of course, you know, I mean, if you have low integrity while everything is going well and societies are rich and progress is happening, you might get away with it. Mm. But, you know, when people's lives are at stakes, then you don't. Mm. So, you know, I think that explains... If you like to put faces to this, it explains, you know, the big difference between, I don't know, an Angela Merkel and a Jair Bolsonaro or even Donald Trump. But then, you know, it's not that you could automatically switch them. Like, you remember that program Wife Swap? I mean, have like President Swap or a Head of State Swap. And then uh, Brazil and America would immediately make progress and Germany would be uh, in in a really bad place. Because I think the leaders that we have Mm. are a reflection of what people want and to some degree what they need as well, by the way, because the fact that 73 million Americans just voted for Trump, who, by the way, is the most voted presidential candidate in the history of the United States, because he is number two and number four. And when you add them up, he beats Barack Obama and everyone else. Okay, so as a candidate here and the fact that this happened even in the worst moment at the worst point of the country that has probably mishandled the pandemic the most, shows you that people want other things. They don't care so much about that, you know, and they rather have their identity validated or between two people, they choose the one that for them looks the least like communism or whatever it is, you know, Mm. but their priorities. And so I think when we look at the female leaders here, it is true and people have done the best analysis that I have seen on this actually accounted for external factors, etc. And, you know, days to order lockdown is the main variable that explains the effects of, let's say, mortality per capita and the variability. It is true that women overperformed. It is also true that there's very few women, so the analysis has would have no statistical power if this was a real test. Mm. It is also true that those women were elected in those places because they cared more about competent, empathetic and honest leaders in the first place. Yeah. It is also true that for women to become leaders, the bar is higher. So actually, they benefit in a way because they have to take... <laughs> 12 out of 10 boxes, whereas, you know, poor men, the criteria are so low that incompetent men can get to leadership roles, (laughs) um, obviously being facetious here. And then the final one is that the conclusion that you're trying to reach, we've known before from large-scale representative studies that show that women on average 
outperform men on measures of empathy, humility, self-control, and even hard skills, because today they're more qualified than men in most educational programs. So the question we want to answer with the pictures of Merkel and Jacinda has been answered before, but, you know, we say data tell, but stories sell. So I'm all for pimping the stories. I'm fine. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about communication. And I want to speak specifically to empathy. Mm -hmm. What role do you think it should play in terms of the way that we communicate with other people? Well, first of all, I think the correct interpretation of empathy is mostly about understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has empathy, some more than others. It's like height, creativity, sense of humor, or, you know, um, taste, right? Mm -hmm. And at high levels, what empathy does is an ability that enables you to understand what other people are thinking and feeling, mm -hmm. you know? Now, you could have empathy and use it to your own advantage or for cultural or most stylistic reasons, not show kindness and warmth and consideration. I mean, there are actually a lot of empathetic but shy introverted individuals who look very cold and almost uh, unemotional, mm. but they're very good at reading others, right? Mm. Uh, then there's a second layer of empathy, which is do you feel what other people are feeling? And, you know, when somebody cries, do you cry? And when they feel joy, does it make you happy? Mm. And you can test this very easily by showing people pictures of others in distress or of joy and measuring the reaction, even at the physiological level, at the level of the brain. But then when we talk about empathy in, in non-academic environments, especially with regards to leadership, what we mean is whether this is being displayed. Are leaders showing warmth, kindness, mm. and uh, consideration, you know? And I do think that this is a shift or a change from the kind of heroic, tough, aggressive, macho-like uh, archetype of a leader. And I do think that empathy is, by definition, a more feminine trait. Mm. By the way, some men are more feminine than some leaders, you and I have just finished watching The Crown season four. Oh, yeah. I don't know how, how accurate that portrayal of Margaret <laughs> Thatcher is, but she seems to have zero empathy. Mm. The portrayal is as psycho-like and psychopaths lack empathy. Mm. You show them people in distress and they laugh. Yeah, that's a pretty grim thought. Yeah, you know, so, but I think, I think, you know, because psychopaths tend to, are often charismatic, they are um, great performers, they're entertaining. We often pick leaders with those characteristics and then we shouldn't be surprised when we find that they don't have empathy mm -hmm. and to the point that, you know, others would have to explain to them that some things that they're doing are hurting others. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, if they're almost extremely psychopathic, they will actually enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty grim thing to consider and probably something we need to look out for a little bit more. I'm aware that we're coming close to time and I've got a few questions left that I want to ask you. So the first one is the, the main way in which you think remote work will change how we conceive of and create organizational culture. I think, you know, culture is not in the building. It's the relationship mm -hmm. between people. And of course, every organizational culture has continued to evolve during the pandemic because it's a new situation where you see how leaders respond and how employees react. So I think in the beginning of the pandemic, there was this joke or a meme that was circulating where somebody was attending an interview and when they asked the person, do you have any questions for us? The question was, yeah, can you tell me how you behaved, what you did for your employees during the pandemic? Hmm. That's actually no longer a joke, it's reality. And I think, you know, 
culture is mostly the product of the values and decisions that the leaders take. Mm -hmm. And, you know, climate is how people perceive it. So I think there's going to be a transition. The next normal is not going to be totally abnormal. It's going to be probably a combination of what happened during lockdown and before. And then it's going to be really interesting to see how companies change for good. And I think people are going to demand more flexibility, more mm -hmm. freedom. And the big challenge is to evaluate what people produce and move beyond a culture of presentism where people are not punished for not being in the right place at the right time or drinking with the right boss in the right place. And, you know, so, by the way, the big, big plus of this pandemic is that probably Me Too and sexual harassment cases are down by a lot, right? Actually, that's a really good point. One of the perks of technology. Exactly. On the flip side of technology, I know that a lot of people are obviously very concerned about the future of automation and the impact this will have on their careers. From your perspective, what are some of the human qualities that technology cannot reproduce that make our position more assured in terms of our future professions? Well, we, you know, we are now more dependent on technology than we were even eight months ago. Without it, we wouldn't have been able to keep productive or even stay sane and work and relate to others. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, things like curiosity, creativity, empathy and kindness and warmth that can't be automated, you know? And I think um, in the next 10 or 20 years, there's no reason to worry because technology will continue to automate a lot of tasks. The big worry is, can we reskill and upskill humans so that they can leverage those technological advancements? I was reading an MIT report recently that said that basically for every dollar you invest in technology, you need to invest almost nine in talent and culture so that oh. people actually leverage that and, you know, enjoy that. And that's basically why we haven't seen a massive productivity gain, despite the massive advances in technology, because mm. we are playing catch up when it comes to reskilling and upskilling. Mm. Okay, so leading from that then, and it does dovetail quite nicely, if you had to pick one thing that you think is key to the long term success of a business, what would that be? Well, I think, you know, it's still the ability to manage talent and understand how to make a group of people, whether it's five, 10 or 10,000, work together and function as a cohesive, coordinated unit. Mm -hmm. More and more we see the product side or the even business or the IP and the ideas and the solutions and the industry that businesses are in as less relevant. And what matters is what they're doing in the realm of human capital and whether they can, you know, produce and nurture talented people and great leaders. Okay, and then finally, cheeky two-part question. In your wildest dreams, what kind of world would you like to build and what one thing could we do to help us get there? Well, Maradona would have to come back from death, you know, given that oh. he died two days ago. And uh, But I know that's difficult. Um, no, look, I think I'm a big believer in incremental progress. Mm. And I think that from any perspective, including the human and social fabric of society, we are better off today than we were at other points in time. But I do think that, you know, the ability or the big challenge, let me say, let me put it like that, is to mm -hmm. remain humane while this huge technological explosion is taking over a bigger and bigger part of our lives, you know? Mm. And so I think we're probably at a phase where we're nostalgic for pre-technology experiences in life. But I think um, we need to find a way to continue 
to express our humanity and behave in humane ways in this brutally sanitized and highly sterilized, structured world of technology. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.